Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to be speaking about trends and opportunities in an industry that affects just about all of us. I'm speaking about the automotive manufacturing industry. To help us do that, we've brought on a fantastic expert. He's Doug Betts. Doug Betts is the president of the automotive division at J.D. Power. He's responsible for leading the strategy and operations for J.D. Power's entire automotive division, which includes the Americas, Europe, and Asia Pacific. Prior to joining J.D. Power in 2017, Doug was at Apple Incorporated, where he helped lead the introduction of Apple's latest product innovations. Previously, Doug held senior executive roles in global manufacturing and quality at FCA Chrysler Automobiles as senior vice president and global head of quality at Nissan Motor Corporation Americas as senior vice president of total customer satisfaction and at Toyota Motor Manufacturing of Indiana as general manager quality for Tundra, Sequoia, and Siena. Doug received his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Before we get to Doug, I'd like to say just a few words about the sponsor of today's episode, EV adoption. Mass adoption of electric vehicles is no longer a question of if, but rather, when will it happen? EV adoption is a leading EV market analysis, data, and consulting firm that helps businesses make data-driven decisions to guide their near- and long-term electric vehicle-related business strategies. Go to www.evadoption.com for more information. That's one word, evadoption.com. Hi, Doug. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hey, Jeff. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's great to have somebody of your stature here and we're talking about a subject that I know, Doug, is of interest to so many people out there. Because let's face it, almost all of us buy cars, right? Or trucks or SUVs. Yeah. Yeah. And you're in it, man. That's what you do. Yeah. Now, Doug, could you please tell our listeners just a little bit about how and when you became involved in the auto manufacturing industry? I know you'd been at Apple. And yeah. was this something, Doug, that you would plan to do? Or is it something that kind of happened serendipitously? No, I've, uh, I, I set out and actually, you know, I've, I've told the story a few times before. My, one of my first memories is probably three years old. I saw a, uh, a 1968 uh, Chevy Camaro blue with a white stripe. I can still picture it in my mind. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I was focused on that. My, my parents gave me some Hot Wheels and that was it, you know, and I was destined to work in the industry. So you were a car lover from when you were a little kid. Yep. Yeah. And I remember back in the day, we had a black Chevy, Doug, 1950. And that was in the day, it might've been an Impala. I'm not sure if it was an Impala. It might've been something Fleetwood or some, yeah. some other name. But in any event, that was back in the day when you could get any color car you wanted as long as it was black. Yeah. <laughs> you remember that day, right? Yeah. So- this was something you had thought about doing even as you were a young child. You ended up working for J.D. Power. J.D. Power has a stellar reputation, and they've been around for quite a while. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with our listeners just a little bit about J.D. Power's history. And we have quite a few listeners who don't live in the United States. And of course, there may be some in the United States who aren't fully sure about what J.D. Power does. So if you yeah. could please share that information with them. Okay. Yeah, I, I think the, the easiest starting point is to say that we are best known as a benchmarking company. So uh, benchmarking and primary, you know, primarily known for the automotive industry, although we do some things in other industries, but I'll talk about automotive first and, and really over 50 years now, benchmarking both products and the 
quality of the service that customers get from the companies and from the dealers. And, you know, we, we take great pride and care in how we go about that. So, you know, and I think probably even for people in the United States who are familiar with the name and kind of know that we give uh, trophies to car companies or, or certain models, et cetera, they, they don't necessarily know how we do that. Some may imagine that it's uh, four or five people in a smoky room, you know, in the back uh, deciding which car we like the best. Uh, I would enjoy that if I was one of those powerful <laughs> people, but we, we don't actually do it that way. We, we survey the owners of the cars every year. Uh, we, we survey, you know, several hundred thousand people about their experience either with the car or with uh, dealing with the dealer network or the OEM. And, uh, and from that, we rank the cars and rank the brands as to which ones have the least problems and which ones also uh, bring the greatest uh, level of joy. Uh, and that can be both at the early stages, shortly after you've purchased the vehicle, as well as after you've owned it for three years, you know, how many problems have you had and how do you feel about it now? Okay. And I would like to have you clarify, you used the acronym OEM. And for those who yeah. aren't familiar with that, could you please explain what OEM is, Doug? Yeah, OEM stands for Original Equipment Manufacturer. Now, Thank still you. a bit of an odd term. Uh, I guess you could say automaker, and everybody would know what that means. But for, for whatever reason, I don't know the history, uh, OEM is a term that's very commonly used uh, to, uh, to name the, the manufacturers. Okay. And maybe if you could say a few words, it's not the focus of our discussion, about what else J.D. Power does because I have yeah. to tell you, I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. So in addition to this benchmarking uh, activity, which we've been doing for a long time, we really very much now are a data and analytics company. And so we collect, you know, obviously all of these surveys that we do of owners, you know, you, that results in data, but that is a small fraction of the data that we have. For example, uh, we have uh somewhere between 40 and 50% of all vehicle transactions that take place in the United States, we have all of that data, what, what the person paid, you know, everything about that transaction, their, their trade-in vehicle uh, and everything about that and how much they were given for it, how much they paid for the new car, what interest rate they got, et cetera, et cetera. So we really understand what people are paying for new and used cars when they buy them. Uh, we also uh, have data about residual values, which is uh, a, a, an industry term, but it's really, you know, what is a car worth after it's three years old? How much does it depreciate? You know, that's another example of the data we have. We also have uh, data about what, if you have a VIN number, which is a vehicle identification number, what is on that car? What is that car and what options and everything about it, the color, you know, because there's a lot more colors than black these days. Yes. Uh, everything about that car, we have a data set that can decode that, which you would think that everybody has access to that. It's not true. Only the automaker that built it knows what was on it. But now we also have a data set across all the manufacturers. So there's a lot of things we do to support the industry using, you know, all of that data, you know, I could, I could bore your audience to death with all of the <laughs> things that can be done with the data that we have. Data and analytics, the two words together and the two words separately are so powerful these days. Every, yeah. Almost every guest I talk to seems to talk about data and analytics. It's amazing. Yeah. When you talked about serving the customer, it reminded me of another organization that does that. And if you could hopefully talk about the difference that may exist between how you do it and say consumer reports does that because yeah. we'll, okay. we'll see consumer reports every year you know about this and they'll give you ratings on cars blah 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 how is it different 
what you do versus what yeah. they do. In your and, opinion, you know, from my background working on quality at, at automakers for many, many years, I'm very familiar with both because it was a part of how I, you know, achieved my goals. So, you know, we were very scientific about how we get the sample, you know, how we get a random sample of people who bought a, bought a particular model and how we contact them in a way to make sure that we don't somehow introduce bias, that the people are truly random owners of a particular model, et cetera, uh, geographically, as well as demographically, you know, they may be uh, different ages, et cetera. Uh, Consumer Reports does uh, really two primary things in terms of evaluating products. They don't, they don't evaluate services, which we do, but when you get to the product, there's two things. There's, they have a, a test track a facility and they have, I don't know what they have now. They used to have 50 tests that they put the vehicles through. They would go and buy one vehicle and do these 50 tests. And out of that, they give it a score. So they call it, that's the road test score. We, we don't do that because we always let the owners of the car speak for how well they like their car, where that part of what Consumer Reports does is really Consumer Reports saying, this is how this car compares to that one, according to our you know, judgment criteria. And then the other thing that they do that is similar to what we do is they do an annual survey where their subscribers uh, basically self-declare to vehicles that they own. And then they fill out a survey on how many problems they had on those two vehicles in the last 12 months. So, you know, it's, I I don't want to be too critical of Consumer Reports because there's no point in that, but you know, obviously it's not as scientific in terms of how they get their sample. People who choose to subscribe uh, and people who name two cars, there's no validation where, you know, we know the people we're sending a letter to own the car because we got the registration data. So, you know, that's that's kind of the difference in the in the two approaches. Well, thanks for explaining that. And I also want to let you know, I really appreciate the value of a scientifically based study, because for a short time in my career, Doug, I worked with a market research company. So I know how important getting samples is and making sure that your sample group is a valid group and therefore the results are, are valid. Yeah. As you are learning and have probably learned in recent times, Doug, looking forward focuses on the future. But to do that, we first like to look a little bit backwards. And I would like you to please share with us your perspectives on how the manufacturing of cars, SUVs, trucks has evolved over the past several decades. You've been tracking them as a kid for many, many years. So you've seen changes going back for a while. And I'm speaking, Doug, here really about prior to COVID. So how, yeah, how have things evolved? And I know you could talk for hours about that, but yeah. what are some of the key changes that we've seen over the last several decades? Yeah, well, you know, I, other memories as a kid was being in a pretty new car, but on the side of the road while, you know, my dad was trying to figure out why the car stopped running, you know, and that, that wasn't an uncommon thing back in the 70s. I had the the good fortune to uh, be exposed to the teachings of a guy named Deming. Oh yeah, uh, W. Edwards Deming. Um, and when I started my career, he, what he taught but had become very popular, and everybody was learning it. And I I don't know that everybody was really getting the point, but uh, but I feel like I did. And uh, and then I, I was exposed to that. I worked for a Michelin uh, tire company for a while, a- outstanding company, and and we 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 learned a lot about Deming in in uh, and applied it to our manufacturing process. And then I went to Toyota, which is really where uh, Deming's teachings were supposed to be best uh, best exemplified. And uh, it was called the Toyota Production System. Uh, many people started to call it lean manufacturing because if uh, if you're another automaker and you want to adopt a production system, you don't want it to be called the Toyota production system because that's your competitor. <laughs> so lean manufacturing became uh, really uh, really important, and you know that has driven improvements in quality and efficiency in the you know the the period of my career that are uh, really uh, magnificent. You know, I mean you. 
the, the chances of a new car breaking down on the highway today are very, very slim. The, the things that people have problems with are what would have been unnoticeable 30 years ago. So, you know, that that's been it's been you know great joy of mine to be able to to see that, uh, to be a part of that, et cetera, over these years. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Deming because he certainly, I would guess, deservedly so gets a lot of credit for kind of kicking the butts of the American manufacturers and saying, hey, you know, we got to do better than this. Yeah. In terms of what you just said, I can remember, Doug, I had, I think it was a 1960. Now, this wasn't my car. It was my mother's car. 1960 Corvair. Mm -hmm. And boy, if that thing wasn't breaking down all the time, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And you're right. I have a car now. It happens to be a Subaru. It's coming up on 100,000 miles. And with the exception of a little problem I had with the sunroof, it's basically, you know, fine. And it's like human life expectancy. The cars are lasting longer, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're yeah. living longer, the cars. Yeah. My son has a, uh, a Land Cruiser that he bought that has 387,000 miles on wow. it. Wow. And everything in it is original. We When he bought it, I said, well, we better change the timing belt because we don't know when it was changed. And I don't want to ruin the engine because the timing belt breaks. And we did that. But otherwise, doesn't burn oil, nothing, you know. So as you think about the last several decades, I know this is probably the most important change. Are there any other significant changes, Doug, that you could point to? Yeah, I think, you know, the the entry of technology into cars mm. Uh, and for owners, it's it's become because there's an absence of uh, of the of the old issues where you're on the side of the road. Um, the the way the technology is implemented has become a big issue for owners. Uh, I remember talking to a, a, a dealer for a particular brand, and it was before uh, that brand had implemented Apple CarPlay into their car. And I I asked him about. I said you know, you, you guys, you don't have Apple CarPlay. And he said, no. And I said, well, how's that, you know, is that a problem? He said, yes. He said, we have every day people walk into the dealership and they, they walk up to somebody and they say, do your cars have Apple CarPlay? (laughs) And we say no. And they turn around and walk back out. You know, they don't (laughs) want the car if it doesn't have that. So, uh, you know, that that's become a, a, a big difference than from the, you know, the past the car was to get you somewhere. Now it's all it's about what you're doing while you're in the car getting somewhere. Absolutely. A couple of other things I'd like you to comment on. I don't know when they were introduced, Doug, but SUVs have become very popular, to say the least. And And I don't remember them back in the day. And the other thing is, hasn't there been a tendency over the last several decades to move to smaller cars maybe that's changing a little bit but yeah it used to be people were driving around with the big oldsmobiles and the cadillacs and all that stuff yeah what do you think well you know i've seen that uh the size i'll circle back to suvs in a minute but okay size issue uh, i've seen kind of like a yo-yo a bit with gas prices so Mm. uh it's an engineering fact that um that highway fuel mileage is most greatly affected by aerodynamics. And there's two numbers associated with aerodynamics. Um, one is the, the, the shape of the car. And anybody, you make a small car, have a, have an aer- a, a low uh, coefficient of drag or a big car, it doesn't matter. But you always multiply it times the frontal area, which is the, the silhouette when you're looking at a vehicle from the front. And so, you know, when gas prices go high and for people who are sensitive to that, you know, that it's a, uh, it, it makes a big hit on their budget, then they're going to run towards small cars and there's no way to avoid small cars going to get better fuel economy. It's, it's also going to be lighter, which is the other piece of fuel economy. So, you know, I, I, I was at uh, Chrysler in 2008 when there was a spike in gas prices and all of a sudden, and Chrysler was a SUV and minivan company. We had a a couple of cars. I didn't think they were very good. They weren't. And uh, all of a sudden gas prices went up and we didn't have anything competitive anymore. And, you know, and we, we, I think we said back then, we'll never let that happen again. But, you know, frankly, a lot of companies are in a position now where that could happen again to them. Now, SUVs, I, I don't know exactly 
uh, why, you know, I mean, I can take some pretty good guesses at why they're popular. They have more space. You can put more stuff in them. You, you just have flexibility. People tend to buy a vehicle thinking about the day when they will have the greatest need, whether that's taking a long trip or hauling, you know, two Labradors to the vet or whatever. Mm -hmm. they, they think about that one day of the year, they're going to have this need and they want to make sure the vehicle can do it. And so they tend to, you know, in a way overbuy the vehicle. I think people feel more secure in, a, in an SUV too. They kind of, you know, they can see things better. They're kind of up above the, above the fray a bit. Although every, the person next to them is staring them right in the eye because they've got an SUV too. But yeah, um, yeah, people have just gotten used to that position on the road and are, are more comfortable with it. I think. Yeah, and I think you alluded to something else that seems to have become more of an issue in the last several decades, which is safety, concerns yeah. about safety. Yeah. And back in my day when I was growing up, we didn't even have seatbelts. So, you know, yeah, no. that's been a huge change. By the way, you mentioned the Chrysler. I can remember I'm a father of twin girls. And back in the day, we had a Dodge Caravan as our minivan. Yeah. Stage of life when that is a critical vehicle to have, for sure. It really is. Now, the comments that you've been making, Doug, about how things have changed over the last uh, several decades, I'm wondering how applicable they would be to changes that might have occurred, trends that might have occurred in other countries over that period of time. We have a listenership that includes people certainly outside the United States and North America. You alluded to Toyota earlier on. What about other countries, have they pretty much experienced similar changes in the things that you talked about, Doug? Yeah, um, you know, there are some differences uh, on, on two fronts. One is in how cars are sold in the market. So we are, the U.S. has primarily been a build to stock market. In other words, people go to a dealership, the dealership has a lot of cars, not, not right now, right? <laughs> but normally has a, a lot of cars available. Yeah. And the people go there with the objective of finding one that they like, and they buy that car. Uh, in other countries, in Europe, for example, traditionally, they have been a built to order market. And so people may go to the dealership and look at an example of a car, but then they order one and they wait, you know, several months to get it. One that's interesting that is sort of the best of both worlds is in Japan, at least I know for sure with Toyota, um, people go to the dealer, you know, there's no space to have like an inventory of cars anyway in Japan. It's pretty, pretty packed country. Yeah. They go to the dealer, they look at an example of what they want, they order one. And then three or four days later, it comes in, you know, wow. this is like the ultimate uh, just in time manufacturing where the car that they ordered, you know, four days later shows up so they can get exactly what they want and uh, they don't have to wait. That's pretty amazing. Yes. <laughs> that's very impressive. That's Deming squared. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> that's really good. Doug, you kind of alluded to this. So let's just get right into it. And when you talked about normally you go to a dealership and there are a lot of cars out there. Okay. Yeah. So I'd like you to speak about how, from your perspective, COVID-19 has had an impact on the auto manufacturing industry. I'm wondering how it's affected those who are buying vehicles as well, not just the manufacturers. Anything that you can share with us along those lines, please? Yeah. So, you know, when this first happened and being in the industry, um, you know, I know that the supply chain is a global supply chain. So, when this first started happening in China, and I actually have people who work for me in China, so I, beyond the news, I, I knew that, that something bad was happening over there. Mm. Uh, I was a bit naive to not you know, immediately recognize that there was no way to stop it from coming here, but let's set that aside. I knew that tools made for making a new car, anybody working on the development of a new model probably their tools were made, you know, some of them in Wuhan actually is a, is a center for making tools. Mm. And, uh, and I knew that, you know, it's likely to disrupt China itself. And I don't think there's a car on the planet that doesn't have parts coming from China. So I thought, oh my gosh, we're gonna, we're gonna lose some production because we're not gonna have parts coming from China. And they may have to fly parts 
over the ocean because normally the parts come on boats and so you could kind of catch up by using air freight but it would be expensive but they would do it and then it was shortly after that that it came over here and you know and then we shut our factories down so we we lost a lot of production last spring globally factories were shut down because we didn't know how to operate in a covid world and um that eventually was overcome and we started building cars and doing it safely. But we lost, once you, lo- once you lose production, it's lost forever. You can't really catch it up. Most factories, factories are so expensive that they're not built with excess ca- capacity. So they, they, they normally run pretty full out all the time anyway. And then, you know, I don't know if anybody knows, but, you know, between all of us humans rushing home and deciding I need a faster computer and, you know, uh, I can't go uh, to the baseball game. So I'm going to buy a, an electronic baseball game and play that. I think we gobbled up a lot of computer chips uh, with demand. And I think also the automakers probably weren't sure if they need, you know, they thought, well, this is a recession. They probably canceled orders. You know, there's no, there's no, facts out there about that, but it wouldn't surprise me if some didn't cancel orders. And I know from my Apple experience that making chips is a, it's a long process, right? So once you cancel uh, getting the, the crystals, then you, you know, you can't get the wafers and you don't get the wafers, you can't make the chips. And, and uh, so we, there was this problem looming, which now we're experiencing. I think that the continued demand for chips is probably like our whole new lifestyle and uh, you know we just need more capacity now. So bottom line is, I think there's 40 days of supply or something, which normally there's 60, 70, 75 days of supply out there. Sales have been strong. People uh, didn't buy cars during the height of the pandemic. So there's pent up demand and there's no cars. And uh, so here, here we are, prices for cars are really good. If you're a, a car dealer, it's a, it's a good, it's a good time. You know, as long as they have enough cars to sell, they're definitely getting good prices for them. So it's a good time for a car dealer, Doug, just to clarify, is it a good yeah. time for a car buyer? Not really. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nothing yeah. like an honest guy. Yeah, I love yeah. I mean, my, my wife, it, her car is older. She could use a new car. She's not complaining. Uh, and I yeah. told her, I cannot in good conscience buy a new car right now. You know, I just, <laughs> I'm genetically incapable of paying a price that's that close to sticker price. So now along those lines, and again, I really appreciate your saying that yeah. only because it's the truth uh, yeah. from you. I, I didn't know. That's why I asked. But what I want to ask you is what I'm hearing is, and I'm not in the market for one, but you will be able to explain all this. Hmm. Used cars, Doug. There's a lot of money to be made with a used car. Is that because of the scarcity per se of cars on the lot? Can you comment on that, please? Yeah, I I think it is just a classic supply and demand, you know, model, which we, you know, I was an engineer, so we didn't spend much time on that. But I I think I had uh, one day in an econ class on that. And uh, it makes sense. You know, yeah. there's not nearly as many new cars. So people have people, some people have to have a car. They, they need a car. They, they've got a change in lifestyle or whatever, or they have a lease that came, you know, that came due and they have to get a different car. And uh, so uh, they're turning to used cars and, you know, the, the pressure for volume on loose used cars is causing the prices to go up. For trucks, you know, I mean, if you've got a small business and you need a pickup truck for that, you got to have it, you know, so you're, you're going to do whatever you have to, uh, to, to find that pickup truck and you may be paying a really high price for it, but you know, the alternative is to not be able to run your business the way that you know you can. So. And there is your one hour of supply and demand coming coming in handy, right? That's it. Basics. Paid off. (laughs) Now here's one of the main aspects of looking forward, which is to look forward. And I would like you with your expertise, and it is vast, to take a look over the next few years. If you had to make a prediction, what trends or developments do you see occurring, Doug, during the rest of this decade in auto manufacturing? And I would preface your answer by asking you, are we going to make up that shortfall in chips 
that you were alluding to. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the demand that there is, that there's no doubt that the chip thing will be solved. I'm not sure how quick it will be. Okay. Uh, if we truly need more capacity, uh, I think I, I read a story the other day that Intel planned to build two new uh, fabrication plants, but it was going to take two years to build them and $20 billion. So wow. not, not an investment to be taken lightly. Mm -mm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think they'll, I think we'll recover somewhat, you know, before that without having to do that. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I think there is uh, one thing that's not really technology related, which I'll speak about first, uh, complexity, uh, manufacturing complexity. And so when I say that, what I mean is I can, I could tell you, and it, there is, there are examples of particular vehicle models that, and not, not something like a pickup truck, which is pretty complicated because of all the different cab configurations and everything. But there are some vehicles that there may be 2,500 different versions of that vehicle built. So it's just a regular vehicle, four-door, you know, midsize SUV. And there are 2,500 different versions of it, meaning, and I'm, I'm excluding color. I'm talking wow. about it has fog lights or it doesn't, it has, uh, you know, the big radio or the small radio It has leather or it doesn't have leather. And imagine multiplying that out and getting to 2,500 different ones, not even talking about color yet. And we've, we've gotten to this place where there is all this complexity. And what's really weird is we are a build to stock. So we're sort of putting these out there thinking I got to put, you know, all this, all these different combinations out there, hoping that somebody will come along and say, that's the one I want. You know, I want it with this. I don't want a sunroof, but I do want that. And, you know, and it, it really, it, it doesn't make sense. The only problem is that nobody really and, until recently has had the data to figure out which ones are people really want and which ones are they like looking at and say, why would anybody want, you know, that? Cause it doesn't have, it's got a sunroof, but it doesn't have the built-in garage door opener. I mean, you know, the, this expensive car, no garage door opener. I mean, there's a lot of cars out there like that that are sort of the wrong version, but they get built. And because there's not been a lot of data and analytics, you know, that's why I know about it applied to the subject to figure out which ones do people want and which ones are better left not built. Now, manufacturing is the victim of this. Uh, they build what they're told to, be, to build and they get told to build by, you know, sales and marketing and the, and the dealer network and they just build them. So the, the complexity in a manufacturing plan is really significant and they've, they've done a lot and spent a lot to be able to support that. And I don't think it's necessary. And I think, Oh, one of the things you'll see happen over the next 10 years is the data that's available now to really squash that down to make it much simpler. Uh, it's going to benefit the manufacturers, but it's also going to benefit the shopper too, because you're going to go out and you're not, you're not going to have to search and see all these ones that don't, aren't what you wanted and you configured it online, but it's not there. And you'll be able to find something that's like, oh, this is good, good for me. It's sort of the Goldilocks, you know, you only need small, medium, and large, you know, and you can decide which one you want. Yeah. You don't need all these uh, other versions. So, you know, and then obviously from a technology standpoint, EVs are a big thing. We have, a, we have a societal push for reduction of CO2. And so this is, you know, this is unstoppable. It's coming. Uh, we, we have to, we have to support the infrastructure and everything to be able to make that transition. Uh, I could, you know, again, talk all day about EVs and about uh, self-driving cars and other things like that. And maybe, maybe, maybe you'll ask me more about that later. I don't know. Thank you for those initial insights. I will ask you to comment a little further on some things, but let me ask you, do you foresee, and I know some of this is happening, but I'm talking now about the major car manufacturers in the United States. Do you foresee, Doug, any potential shift as I think about what you've said about all these permutations and combinations, any potential shift in the way cars are manufactured here, such as the way it's done in Japan, where it might be more made to order than it is you go to a showroom and go out in the lot? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, simplifying the complexity is something that can make that uh, more 
more doable. There's a lot of value. I mean, if you think about normally having 60 days supply of something as expensive as a car, sit, you know, in effect, sitting on the shelf, uh, just the carrying cost of that alone is a huge opportunity. So if we could make that transition to where people order it, they wait three days to get what they want, the, the savings would be huge. I, I don't know exactly why it hasn't happened. I mean, it's very difficult, no, no doubt, but it, but it can be done and it's, it's an opportunity for somebody you know, to go after. I would think so. Getting back to the electric vehicles, I had a wonderful guest on months and months ago, Lauren McDonald, and Lauren speaks about EVs. And I wanted to ask you, I know that you have written about EVs, probably written a lot about them, and you had written about something I found very interesting, which is you seem to talk about the importance of the collaboration that will need to exist between automotive manufacturers and utility companies. Can you please comment on that as we look into the future? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about all of the energy that is uh, provided and consumed currently to automobiles via gas stations, that, I mean, it's just a lot of energy, right? So if we are to transition to EVs, then that energy is going to be delivered via the electrical, you know, infrastructure or grid. So there's obviously a lot to be done there to, to deliver that much more energy uh, just on the, you know, at a gross level. And then after that is how do you get it to the right place at the, at the right time? And one of the things that the utility companies really struggle with is the fact that the usage of electricity set aside cars, they're not a part of it now, but uh, it's very unbalanced, right? I mean, in the daytime when humans are up and awake and doing stuff, we're, we're using electricity, the, the sun's out, the air conditioner's on, et cetera. And then uh, in the wee hours of the night, we're all asleep. We got our lights turned out. We're not doing anything. And the, the fact is they have to be able to generate the electricity to, to meet the peak demand at that peak. And then at, at night when we're not using it, they don't have anything to do with it, you know, but they've spent money to build the, the machinery to make all this electricity and it's uh, sitting idle. In fact, it's not even efficient to shut it down. They're trying to find ways to, to make use of it. So, you know, one of the visions is that that capacity that is a valley at night can be used to charge these cars at night. And during the day, the cars can go out and do their thing and they, they wouldn't be connected. So there's, there's a lot to be worked out, you know, and even the cars could be, you know, called in as reinforcements. Like I, we've got a peak demand. It's a hot day. We're going to have a brownout and, you know, you're driving your EV and you've, you're on a list of people that are willing to stop and plug in to help the cause, you know, so you pull yeah. over, you plug in your car and you're keeping the, the, the grid from going down. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that could be done. And eventually they will be done, but you know it takes us a long time to work out some of these arrangements. But it's a it's a real uh, it's a very interesting you know field. I would, if I was just coming out of school, I think that's I would go into that you know figuring all of that out. Yeah, it's a really exciting time as we're making that transition to electric powered vehicles. And I want to ask you one other question. It involves JD Power because JD Power is involved in so much of what. I think consumers are interested in, and that is you are, I guess you're working with maybe an outside organization. I'm not sure if it's called PlugShare, but you have discerned that Tesla is popular in one respect because of the home charging experience. Yeah. And again, as we move into that brave new world on looking forward can you tell us a little bit more about that? You're kind of touching on it just before the home yeah. charging experience. Well, um, yeah, we, we've got a number of new uh, studies, we call them on EVs, and uh, a couple of them are related to charging. One is home charging, which you're referring to. And then there's a public charging study that we're doing. It's not out yet, but it's coming. So, uh, so for Tesla, obviously they've been doing this longer than everybody else. They've got experience. You know, when you buy a Tesla, I think a part of the process is making sure you get a charger installed at your house because 
88% of people who have EVs only charge at their house. They don't charge anywhere else because, mm. you know, if you got, a, you got a car with a 300 mile range, how many days are you in a year going more than 300 miles? You're always going to, you know, be back home and recharge, you know, later that day or overnight. Yes. So, you know, they, they're good at it. Their chargers are good. They're fast. You know, people are happy with how that goes with the Tesla. Some of the other companies maybe haven't worked all that out. They, I don't think anybody else has their own brand of charger that's made for their car. So they're using other companies as partners. So, you know, I'm confident the other companies will, will make progress and, and uh, catch up, but that's an advantage Tesla has. I think that when the public charging study comes out, I, I feel fairly certain that you're also going to see Tesla way ahead on that because they've, you know, they've got the chargers out there. They've, they've spaced them out. You can take a cross country trip in a Tesla because they've got them spaced out along the map and, and uh, they charge fast and, and people are doing that where the others, the, the infrastructure isn't there yet. And it's a little bit more difficult. So there's a lot to be, to be done there uh, on uh, if in the event that you do stray far from home, I think that public infrastructure just isn't, isn't there yet. You know, it's interesting, too, because as you were speaking near the end there, Doug, you said the word I was going to say. I was going to say infrastructure is a very popular word these days, and yeah. that's what they're doing at Tesla, right? It's infrastructure. Yeah. yeah. Now, I have one other question to ask you before we get into opportunities that I should have asked you before it occurred to me. And you may not know the answer to this only because you're relatively new to J.D. Power. Mm -hmm. And that is, I'm wondering if I were to ask somebody who's been with J.D. Power a long time, and maybe you've asked them this, how would they say that the respondents to the surveys, scientifically based studies that J.D. Power does, how have the respondents changed or how has your survey had to change over the years for whatever reason? Have there been changes yeah. and are they driven, no pun intended, by the customer? Yeah, they, they definitely have. And I, that's a great question. And I do know the answer because right. uh, even before I, I mean, I, when I, my first day at JD power, I, I said to the team, you know, I've been working for JD power for 20 years. Now, finally, I'm going to get paid, you know, cause I, <laughs> I was working to do better in the survey before. Yeah. So, you know, in the, in the early days, cars broke. We talked about that being on the side of the road. And most of the questions were about, did your air conditioning stop working? Did your, you know, brakes start to make a terrible vibration? Did your, you know, engine shut down and so, so forth? And over time, as cars have both gotten better on that front, we call that malfunctions. There's another category that has emerged uh, with that we call, we call them DTU. It stands for difficult to use or difficult to understand. So... Mm. Uh, we started to ask questions about, do you have trouble uh, pulling up your navigation system? Do you have trouble understanding how to use your cruise control? And what we found is that is as cars do more and more things, there are more and more aggravations by owners about this technology, not being able to figure it out, not understanding, not finding it convenient. You know, there are some cars where instead of having a button for the seat heater, it's like you got to go three menus deep. I mean, you're freezing to death. You want to turn the seat <laughs> heater on, but you know you got to find it in the menu somewhere, and and it's not obvious. So, one of the big changes that we've seen, and it's really come to fruition in the last, I would say, seven or eight years, that DTU problems. Not only are there more of them, but when we ask customers, how important is this problem to you? the DTU problems have become more important than the malfunctions because, and the, and the, the respondents say, well, if something breaks, I take it to the dealer and they fix it. And then it's not broken anymore. These things where it doesn't work right. I don't like the way it works. I take it to the dealer and the dealer says, that's just the way it is. I can't <laughs> fix it for you, you know, sorry. And I have to live with it for as long as I own the car. So that's really been an interesting, and some automakers have struggled with adapting to that because they always thought, and I know I was the same way, 
I always thought broken is worse than, than, you know, I don't like it, but that has changed. I don't like it is a bigger problem because you can't fix it. Doug, that is fascinating. And what a great example of how things have changed yeah. because of cars being made better because right? yes. yeah. they aren't failing and overheating as they often would. I yeah. remember that happening all the time, cars yeah. overheating. Now we get to the other reason why looking forward is called looking forward. It's upbeat. I'm looking forward. And so I'm going to ask you if you can think about a whole bunch of different groups, Doug. I want you to think about, well, first and foremost, I want you to think about opportunities. We're always looking for opportunities as individuals, as groups. So put that word in your mind and think about these disparate groups. I want you to think about college students. We were both that once. Yep. What should I major in? The person who's just graduated. I wonder what I should get involved with. Hopefully they've gotten involved in something that relates to what they learn, but that doesn't always happen as I heard from another guest. Yeah. How about the people who unfortunately, and there are some people in the automotive industry, lost their jobs due to COVID. And then yeah. you got the people who aren't happy with their jobs and they want to change jobs. And then you have investors looking for opportunities and small business. There's a whole bunch of people for different reasons looking at what's out there. Yeah. I've talked about a lot of different groups. I don't expect yeah. you to answer for all of them, yeah. but to distill this, Doug, where do you see opportunities? Where do you see potential winners yeah. in, in this whole landscape of the automotive manufacturing industry? You know, I'll, I'll uh, categorize three type, you know, because obviously some types of people are inclined to a certain kind of jobs. So sure. first of all, EV vehicles are quite a bit different than uh internal combustion, there will be a lot of people who spent a great deal of time becoming educated on internal combustion and multi-speed transmissions. And as this transition occurs, I mean, if you're getting ready to go to college, I recommend not studying that subject. <laughs> okay. It will take some time. So if you are 10 years out of college and you're focused on that, I think you'll probably be okay. okay. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but that's going away. And there's a lot of people that do that. And they are super, super smart people. But we, we, we just won't need that, you know. And uh, so that's sad in a way. But battery technology is very complex and something that, you know, is an opportunity. So if you're, if you're inclined towards that sort of stuff, that would be something to get into. The other one is this data and analytics concept, again, uh, even applies to a self-driving car. Um, you know, I believe that one of the things that Tesla is doing is doing a really great job of collecting data from all of their cars. Their cars all have cameras that are looking to make sure they don't, you know, run into stuff. And, and they're, they're working on making those cars more automated in their driving. Well, that's all about collecting data and seeing, okay, here's a cow on the side of the road, you know, what, what should I do? Is the cow going to lumber out into the road and should I slow down? You know, th this is all uh, data coming in, people deciding to write the software to say, you know, I need to assume the cow could step out. I'm going to, you know, slow the speed down, maybe get hug the left lane and whatever. Uh, the kind of stuff that a human would react to, you know, they're writing software to do that. So that's a whole nother field and that's going to grow and grow and grow. Uh, mm -hmm. and be applied to lots of things that automated vehicles are going to do. And then the last one, for those of you in the audience that aren't engineers, and you're like, I don't, I'm not going to do any of that. <laughs> uh, I'm, I like selling stuff and whatever. Yeah. So the other big revolution that has been uh, ongoing uh, in, in the world and is really moving into automotive and COVID hastened that is digital retailing. I really want to call it the automation of selling. So, you know, selling a car is about following steps, finding the right car for the person. Uh, after that, there's a lot of, you know, for an engineer, basic math, but there's a lot of math, you know, about what am I selling the car for? What's the interest rate? What's the trade? Increasingly, that's going to require uh, algorithms and data to be able to do those calculations so that people can shop using a computer, answer questions, and the, the computer will figure out the deal for them. So there are going to be a lot of people still involved 
in developing that as well as implementing it, training others how to use the technology and the integration of that to, you know, the, the more legacy systems that are in dealers. So it's a, it's a great new, uh, a great new area to get involved in the automation of selling. Interesting. One last question related to that, if you could please comment on it would be, what about opportunities in working for auto manufacturers, Doug, or how about the suppliers? If you talk about EVs, the suppliers of the batteries and what is, are there opportunities there? Yeah, no, no doubt. We, we don't have anywhere near the battery capacity that we're going to need. We don't have anywhere near the uh, electric motor capacity that we're going to need. And, you know, as cars become uh, self-driving, I mean, the, the configuration of the cars is going to be able to change because you, you're not all like focused on facing the same direction along with the driver, et cetera. So there's still going to be lots of opportunities at automakers and suppliers for the technology that's going to allow cars. And then, you know, the other, the, the, the one last area that's definitely rapidly changed recently is delivery of things to your home, right? And so no doubt the, the people making delivery vehicles have been burning the midnight oil yes. uh, because there's, you know, yeah, I, I can scarcely look out in the street and not see one go by. And those are going to be, you know, changing rapidly because they, they, they need to be optimized for what it is that they're delivering. I saw the uh, the Domino's commercial with the the, the self driving pizza vehicle, <laughs> you know, and I I'm looking forward to that so that I'm because I I want my pizza to stay warm and I think that vehicle like actually has an oven inside of it. <laughs> That's great. On that note, I just want to mention to you I heard a presentation recently. You would find this interesting. Maybe you knew about it. In Russia, they have a drone that's delivering pizzas. Mm. <laughs> That's a whole other topic, drones. Yeah. Seems uh, like it would get cold in Russia. They'd be flying with your pizza, but I don't know. Maybe it's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially if it were in Siberia, right? Can you imagine that? Anyway, Doug, you've been great. I really appreciate your insights. How can our listeners find out more about you, about J.D. Power, what you guys are doing, and anything else you think that they ought to know about? Well, probably the best way is we have a, a website appropriately titled jdpower.com. And yes. on there you can, if you're interested in cars, you can look at the ratings, you know, of, of cars. We, we don't give all the detail that we normally would give to an automaker, but you can get a general idea of maybe figuring out which car is right for you. And there's even uh, cars on there that you can click around on and find a local dealer, et cetera. There's not as many as there used to be, but they'll they'll yeah. be back, you know. So, uh, and then there's a bit about the business and what we do, et cetera. Yeah, and I might add, if people check your website out or read articles as I have, JD Power is involved in a lot of interesting studies, and you're kind of at the edge, you know, of where things are going. So you're an appropriate guest to have on Looking Forward. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and your perspective. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F dash Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F dot com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.